somehow managed to have the door on the ATM machine shut on him and lock him inside while he was working on it. And his phone was in his truck. And he could not get out. And so somebody pulled up uh, in the drive through ATM and he decides, I'm going to shake this thing from the inside Start hollering and maybe somebody will help me. The first two people drove off. It freaked them out. Maybe they thought the machine was possessed. They didn't know what to do. And so finally he got some help when he took uh, a $10 bill and wrote on the cover of it, please help me, I'm stuck inside of this machine. And so when somebody withdrew cash, the next person that came up, out came this $10 bill that had this message on it, and this guy started shaking the machine from the inside. And eventually they called for help and he got out. I can't imagine a day like that at the office, can you? And yet that's a perfect picture in many ways for what we're talking about. I think we all know what it is to be trapped by our technology. All of us do particularly when it comes to uh, it limiting us being present where we are. What I'm going to share with you in many ways is a synthesis of some things I've done with our church, The Branch, this past January in a series called Present, Learning to Be Where You Are. And uh, if you're interested, because I'm going to share with you a lot of stuff in a very concentrated period of time, if you're interested in the notes, I'll be happy to send you the notes later. I don't even have uh, my PowerPoint with me. I'm just going to kind of let the shrapnel fly. You can write down what you want. If you think, man, I want all these notes, you can email me later. I'm going to give you my email address. Here we go. It is C-S-E-I-D-M-A-N at thebranchchurch.org. Uh, C-Seedman at thebranchchurch.org. Um, I want you to know we're not the only generation of people that have struggled to be where we are. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, a lot of his teachings have implications for helping people learn to be where they are. There's a reason he talked so much about forgiveness, because he knew he was talking to human beings, many of whom were stuck in the vice-like grip of the memory of other people's injustices to them. Amen? And so Jesus did a lot of teaching on forgiveness. Why? Because there are always people who are stuck in the past with regrets, with shame, with all kinds of things. On the flip side, Jesus also talked a lot about people being preoccupied with anxiety over the future. Amen? If you just go through his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, his teachings have implications for people who are preoccupied with their sins of the past or with the sins of others against them in the past. And his teachings have implications for other people who are preoccupied with the future, which is why he had so much to say about anxiety and worry. Here's why I'm telling you this. We're not the only generation in history who've struggled to be where we are. Every human being has struggled to be where they are, tormented either by regrets over the past or anxiety over the future. However, we have some additional forces working against us being where we are. And one of these forces at times can be our technology. This little thing I have in my hand, my smartphone, has 30,000 times the processing speed of the 70-pound navigational computer that landed Apollo on the moon. 30,000 times the processing speed of the computer that landed the Apollo on the moon. We live in an amazing day. With, with this thing, I can, I can pay my bills, I can connect with others, I can do work, I can entertain myself. It can enable me to accomplish so much without ever having to go anywhere else. And at the same time, it can prevent me from ever being fully where I am. Go figure that one out. You can accomplish so much without ever going there, and yet... It can prevent you from ever being fully where you are. So I want to begin just with a few things up front to let you know. The first is this. This is not for our inspection of others. This is for our introspection. I want to encourage you to resist the tendency to be thinking about who else you wish were here with you. You know. I want to encourage you just to have some introspection with me. As 
God put it in Haggai 1 and 5, give careful thought to your ways. Let's just think about our ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Galatians 6 and 4, each of us should test our own actions, not comparing ourselves with others. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself. Test yourself. This isn't about inspecting others. It's about having some introspection. Second thing I want you to know, this is not about bashing technology. Technology can be an incredible servant. For instance, the YouVersion Bible app that a lot of you have on your phones, it's made it possible for people to have the Bible digitally in places that they've never seen a hard copy of the Bible. It's going to places like China, the Middle East, Africa, where hard copies have never been seen. Hardly a week goes by where I don't get an email or a note from somebody living somewhere else in the world who is watching or listening to stuff happening at the branch online. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's really amazing. This is not about bashing technology. It is an awesome servant. It's just a terrible master. And, and people, in many ways, can be served in so many ways by the servant. You can probably think about a text you've received from someone at just the right time. You can probably think about being able to FaceTime with a loved one on the other side of the world. You can probably um, think about... Um, finding important content on your phone at a moment's notice. You can probably think about doing something so efficiently on your device that freed you up to do something else with a loved one for a couple of hours. It is an awesome servant. It's just a terrible master. This can be used for so much good in so many ways. Um, and and it, it really is amazing. In our church, the branch, 60% of all giving at the branch is done online or through a smart device. 60%. 60%. And, and so in so many ways, uh, this is not about bashing technology. Uh, full disclosure, our church has a branch app, okay? So I could be accused of hypocrisy here, some of the things, okay? It's an excellent service, just a terrible master. Um, third thing I want you to know, this is about freedom. This is about freedom. Because it's an excellent servant, but it's a terrible master. On average, we check our phones every 4.3 minutes on average. This does not include people calling us, texting us, or receiving notifications. It's we decide to consult our smart devices every four minutes or so. And we do this for a lot of reasons, because it's how we connect, it's how we're building relationships, how we're paying for things, how we get work done. But you don't need a behavioral scientist or a psychologist to tell you that your relationship with your device can be addictive. Most of the times we think of addictions in terms of substances, but addictions can take a lot of shapes. Neuroscientists will tell you that your brain lights up when you engage in your, with your device in the same way that a drug addict's brain lights up. There's dopamine being released. If you're into ordering stuff off eBay or Amazon, then you know that thrill of seeing something and clicking it. I live in Coppell, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, where Amazon's North Texas distribution facilities are. We're a part of Amazon Prime. We can order something from Amazon. It, it's, it's at our house within an hour, if you can imagine, including groceries. We can get bottled water quicker delivered to our house from Amazon than we can go into Sam's or Walmart. It's crazy. But what happens is, if you do your shopping more online, you're familiar with the dopamine release, especially if you're waiting for a golf club to come in mail or a, or a cute skirt or something. You order it, and you have the picture of it, and you're like, and you're tracking it on your, you, on your phone, and you're like, when's it getting here? When's it getting here? You know this feeling, and then the UPS guy shows up, or the postal delivers it. You, you open it up. It's this, it, it's this dopamine release of both clicking and ordering and then getting it, and then an hour later, you're like, why did I get this? The World Health Organization earlier this year has officially recognized gaming disorder as a mental condition. In the most advanced parts of China, Japan, and South Korea, which are more technologically advanced than we are, if you've ever been to Seoul, you know this. Seoul is unreal in its lights, its technology, 
It's Wi-Fi speed. It's unreal. There are now inpatient rehab programs in the most advanced parts of China and Korea and Japan that are dealing with thousands of Asian young men and women, giving them a chance to detox from their devices. You may think, oh, come on, Chris, an addiction? But an, all an addiction is, it's something you enjoy doing in the short term at the expense of your long-term well-being, and yet you keep doing it compulsively. And these kinds of compulsions are what's behind the endless scrolling through apps and notifications and gaming on phones. Those who design apps understand this, how our brain works. They're not out to create addicts. They're just out to keep you hooked for a few more seconds so you'll see the advertisements that they're being paid. So we hit our Facebook or our Twitter or our Snapchat or our Instagram or our fill-in-the-blank 50 times a day like a monkey in a 1950s experiment with the self-administration of cocaine. You know? And study after study will tell you, uh, the more we interact with our devices, the more prone we are to depression and anxiety and the less able we are to concentrate at work or sleep at night. In the beginning, we enter into our relationship with technology looking for freedom. And like I said earlier, in my, this isn't about bashing technology because it is an awesome servant. I'm going to help you think through this theologically here in just a second. I'm just telling you some stuff up front. It's an awesome servant. In the end, we enter into it uh, with, with looking for freedom, but we wind up sometimes less free in some of the most important ways. One of the things we learn walking with Jesus from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is uh, that we don't grow in our freedom without some measure of intentionality. Paul addressed believers in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you remember, and he said, he said, a lot of you are really focused on what you have a right to do. He said, you, you have a right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. If you remember, he says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. He says, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And sometimes we wind up being mastered by things that we were absolutely consumed with having the right to do. So we think through these things. And so Paul says, hey, be, be careful that you're not so focused on what you have a right to do that you lose sight of its capacity to enslave you. Have you ever noticed how much we bow down to our devices today? Always bowing. <laughs> Always bowing. And my, I'm not shaming us. I'm just letting you know this is the water we're swimming in. And we're all in this together. Amen? And so I, I, this has part of, been part of my desire where I serve just to help us get a little more of a handle on it before it has any more of a handle on us. Here's another thing I want you to know. This is about learning to live in the moment and not necessarily through your device. About learning to live in the moment, not necessarily through your device. I should have brought my, my, my pictures with me, but I've got an awesome picture of a fella just off, not too far from here, um, uh, off the coast of Redondo Beach, California. He's sitting on a sailboat, he's on vacation. And he's sitting on a sailboat and it's whale watching time. And what's so ironic, he has a humpback whale that's come up out of the water right next to the boat where he is. And he's on his phone. He doesn't see the humpback whale. And that's a picture of sometimes what happens to us. Where we trade reality for virtual reality. You know. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, earth is crammed with heaven. Every common bush afire with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest of us sit around and pluck blackberries. Or are on our phones, you know. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. I like to think of it as Diary of a Madman, you know. Where Solomon is reflecting on his search for what matters and meaning. And he comes along to that passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and he says, Hey, there's a time, God's made everything beautiful in its time. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. 
He goes on to say, God's made everything beautiful in its time. One of the things he's saying is that there is a time for each one of these things. God has made everything beautiful and fitting in its time. Now, there are some pretty rough things in here. There's a time for war, he says, a time for hate, a time to die. You might be thinking, wow, there's a time for those things? And who gets to determine what time it is? Well, the short answer is God does. Well, how do we know what time he thinks it is? <laughs> well, we have to get to know him, his nature, his character, most perfectly revealed in Jesus. We also have the leading of his spirit, theme for this week. We have the counsel of others around us. Here's the rub, though. Most of the time, we do these things or give in to these things when it's not time for him, for them. We go to war over the wrong things, and we hate the wrong things. Part of the nature of the work of the enemy is to get you to act in a way that it's not time for you to act. On the flip side, there are a lot of wonderful things in this passage. There's a time to be born, there's a time to heal, there's a time to, to build, there's a time to laugh, but here's the deal. It's hard for you and me to know what time it is if we're not living fully in the moment. This is part about being, putting ourselves in position to live fully in the moment so we can discern what time it is. And whether it's the wonderful experiences of life or the painful experiences of life, our technology today, if we're not careful, can offer us an opportunity to take an escape route from living fully in the moment to where we exchange reality for virtual reality. And we miss the opportunity for awe, for worship, for wonder, for rest. Sometimes we miss the opportunity to minister to someone else, which leads me to this. This is about excelling in loving others. Jesus said there were two greater commands above all the others. And one of the great challenges of life in my relationship with my screens and my technology is that, it, that if I'm not careful, I wind up paying more attention to them than the person in front of me. There's no shortage of apps out here that allow me to monitor the lives of 6 billion other people in case I get bored with the person in front of me. So what you have is you have a generation of people that through these apps, we can keep up with what everybody is doing everywhere else but where we are. And we can be connected with people who aren't where we are and be disconnected from the person across the table from us. And so some of this, some of this is also about learning to excel in loving others. The last couple of years, there's been a world of research done on state university campuses that reveals that um, the more frequent contact I have with my device, uh, the more my capacity for empathy goes down. Because part of empathy is what? Learning to emotionally relate to somebody else's suffering. But in order for me to emotionally relate to somebody, I have to be able to listen to them and pay attention to them and hear their story. It's difficult to pay attention to someone if I'm constantly giving my attention to a screen more than a person. Do you know how long it takes to develop a real conversation with somebody? This is important. About seven minutes, studies say takes seven minutes to develop a real conversation with somebody that's how long it takes you to go through the weather the demise of your local sports team what's happening on the political scene what's happening in the economy what you're wearing what, what's going on during that whole time people are trying to decide can I trust you and do you trust me takes seven minutes generally to get somewhere in a conversation think about this if this is true, this can explain why you can go to church with people for 20 years and never really have a conversation because at the most you talk is two or three minutes in the lobby before or afterwards. And then something happens. Insecurity crops up. I'm running out of things to talk about. I don't know what to do. I've run out of material here. And so all kinds of things come up. Boredom, insecurities. This is a huge, huge deal. And so what technology has allowed us to do is it made us even less tolerant of doing the work of the seven minutes. We get to press the eject button more. Is this making some sense? Yeah. 
And sometimes you're with people, and if this thing holds you hostage, people begin to get the feeling that they're not worth listening to. And then they shut down. And they, they decide, I'm not a trustworthy person. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. One of the hardest things about these things is it's just given us a vehicle for more self-seeking to exercise that. Again, it is an awesome servant. I'm just exploring how it can also be a terrible master. Now, as I think about our relationship with technology, I think about the old book, Gulliver's Travels. You know, Jonathan Swift wrote about Gulliver washes up on an island and he winds up, if you remember, he wakes up and he's been tied down by all these uh, uh, Lilliputtons, you know, and, and, he's, and he's tied down by them, by, by these little bitty human beings that are one-twelfth his size. And sometimes that's us. We're tied down by things smaller than us. And this is about cutting loose a little bit. Having said that, here's what I want to do with us. Today, I'm going to spend the rest of the time with you really giving you a working, techno, techno, a working theology of technology. Then tomorrow, I'm going to talk to you about our hearts. I'm going to talk to you, we're going to talk through to our, I'm going to talk to your brain. I'm going to talk to your heart tomorrow when it comes to technology. A working th theology of technology. In order to really appreciate what I'm saying, I just want to give you a little biblical perspective here in many ways, a 30,000 foot view as we, uh, as we think about this. Let me begin with one of the best definitions of technology I've ever heard by a man named Tony Reinke. And here's what he says, technology is the reordering of raw materials for human purposes. Okay. There's, by the way, this happens all over the Bible, the reordering of raw materials for human purposes. In other words, we take materials of the earth and we reorder them for human purposes. What gives us that right? God does. God gave us that right. Technology is the expression of authority that God has given human beings over the earth. So in Genesis 1, he creates human beings and he tells human beings to subdue the earth. That's a very negative term to us as Americans, subdue. All that means, biblically in Genesis 1, what it means to have authority, it means to do that which allows for life and growth. So you think about a parent who has authority over a child. My boys may feel like he, he has authority so he can squish us and squelch our life, you know, because authority at times is about providing boundaries, not to ruin their life, but to promote life and growth. Amen? Okay. That's the... So the biblical meaning of authority is to do that which allows life and growth. So he gives human beings authority over the planet. Now check this out. So in Genesis 2, you read this little bitty verse in Genesis 2, 6, and 7 that says, the earth did not bring forth shrubs or a harvest because of two reasons. There hadn't been rain yet, and there was no one to work the ground. Check this out. The earth didn't bring forth a harvest or shrubs until Adam and Eve were there to work the ground. What's the picture? Adam and Eve were involved in bringing the potential out of creation. It's the way God set it up. That human beings are involved. We've been given authority in bringing the potential out of things. This is why sometimes when people blame God for some stuff, why are you allowing? And that's not the question. God's probably asking, why are you allowing? Because I've given you a certain measure of authority over your life and over life on this planet. We have leverage in some ways. And I don't have this all worked out. There's a mystery between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Amen? But we have a certain amount of leverage. And so the, the meaning of authority is to do that which allows life and growth. Now check this out. This is some of the background for developing technology. It has something to do with the flourishing of life on the earth. Everybody say flourishing. Flourishing. Not floundering, flourishing. And so God's given human beings authority to do things over the planet that life might flourish on the planet. So one of the earliest examples of ancient technology is a stone tool. 
where human beings figured out with this tool I can exercise leverage in the dirt and, and I can do things faster, better, longer, digging with a tool than with my hands. And this in turn impacts planting and harvesting. Amen? Very elementary example. So let me just remind you of some good and past bad stories of technology in the Bible. Very early in Scripture, you have Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve's firstborn son is Cain. Cain is a worker of the soil. He's a farmer. Guess what Cain also does? Cain is the first person to build a city. Read the rest of Genesis 4. This worker of the soil winds up building the first city. And Genesis 4 goes on to talk about the descendants of Cain. Remember, technology is the reordering of raw materials for, for human purposes. Okay. One of the descendants of Cain is a guy named Jubal. A cool name. You ought to name your band that. If you're, you have a band, you can suggest this. Who's Jubal? The father of all who plays stringed instruments and pipes. Jubal figured out how to make sounds by putting together strings and pieces of wood. He worked with the materials of earth to produce sounds that were pleasing to people's ears, technology. Then you read about Tubal Cain. He forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. That's Genesis 4.22, Tubal Cain. Then you read about Genesis 6 where God directs Noah to build a what? An ark. Where he's using the raw materials on earth to do something that's part of God's plan for human history. Fascinating stuff. Then you get to Genesis 11. It's not such a hot story about technology in some ways. It's the story of the Tower of Babel, and I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow and having to do with our hearts and what this tells us. But, but it's about what human beings are doing with technology to spread their name. Exodus 31, you read about artists and craftsmen being filled with the Spirit. Artists and craftsmen being filled with the Spirit to build the tabernacle and to do intricate designs of the tabernacle. Amazing stuff. God's spirit filling artists and craftsmen. In Exodus 32, then you run into another uh, not so hot a story about technology where, where Aaron uses technology to craft a golden calf. And I love what he says to Moses. I don't know what happened. We just threw the gold out there and there and out popped the calf. But he honed this calf. Aaron did at the bequest of the people using technology. In Kings and Chronicles, Solomon builds the permanent temple in Jerusalem using engineers and craftsmen. In First and Second Kings, you read about Hezekiah who engineered these unbelievable reservoirs and water tunnels to help Jerusalem flourish. I got to walk through the water tunnels last year. Unreal stuff to think what, what they crafted all, thousands of years ago as I walked through those tunnels with the water still at my feet. Amazing stuff. In 2 Chronicles, you read about Uzziah designing machines that shoot arrows and hurls large stones over walls, catapults. But then you read stuff in Psalms where the psalmist is beginning to reflect on how human beings are beginning to put faith in technology. And so the psalmist comes along and says in Psalm 20 and verse 7, hey, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They're even wrestling in ancient times with how much to trust in their technology. That's Psalm 20. It's interesting that the prophet Isaiah prophesied of a day when there will be no more technology for war, but there will be technology for planting and harvesting. He envisions a day where technology is exclusively used for flourishing and no longer for self-defense. So in Isaiah 2 and verse 4, what does Isaiah prophesy? He talks about the day on the Mount of the Lord where we will beat our swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks. He's talking about a different use of technology. You get to the New Testament, technology's all over the New Testament. Jesus is using it in his teaching. Nets, oil, lamps, city gates in his parables. Then you get to the, Paul talks about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, king on Roman technology. Then you get to the very end of the Bible, where heaven is it, different in some ways. The, the Bible begins with a garden, but the Bible ends with a story about a city that's been developed. 
of streets and gates and a river of life running down the middle of it. It's just interesting just to think about there's good stories and there are bad stories with technology and scripture, just like there's good stories and bad stories with technology in my life. Amen? So what makes the difference? I think it has something to do with technology being in its proper place in our life, which is why I began in Genesis 1. Technology has a place in the flourishing of our life. It does. It has a place. I'm not out to bash it in the least. I'm profoundly grateful for it. In fact, just think about how impacted we are by our technology. How many of us have glasses or hearing aids? How many have a pacemaker? How about industrial technology that enables you to use your hands on hydraulic arms of digging machines? How about medical technology? How, how about clothing technology that makes it possible for you to function outside in all kinds of conditions. Today, it's going to be sunny and warm. The last two days, it's been cold. Everybody's been walking around with fleeces. How about agricultural technology that makes it possible to do massive planting and harvesting? I think about something we did a few years ago at our church. We took up a, an offering one weekend to drill a bunch of wells in Kenya and Somalia. Um, the church gave $268,000 one weekend to do this. Drilled 30 wells in Kenya and Somalia, 2011. Today, there are 31 churches all around those wells. But that was possible because of the place of technology to drill a well 900 feet deep beneath desert floors in Kenya and Somalia to find water where there was no water for 50 square miles. It's an excellent servant. It's an awesome servant. It's, it can be used to help people flourish. Technology is not anti-faith and technology is not anti-spiritual. It can be an expression of the will of God to give human beings authority of the earth for the sake of helping life to flourish. And so if you work in technology, you have everything to do with the flourishing of life on earth. And you might be thinking, oh man, I don't know, Chris. I mean, I do, I sell software, I do IT work, I service devices, yeah. You might have to work to connect the dots the way they did in Philadelphia a few years ago. In Philadelphia, the sanitation engineers went on strike a few years ago. They went on strike for two weeks. And everybody found out how important a sanitation engineer was in Philadelphia as the entire city became a health hazard and garbage piled up on the street corners. And suddenly, it became very apparent how important a sanitation engineer was to a community flourishing. You may have to think through this. On the flip side, when we flounder with it, things happen. We have a rise in anxiety, less sleep, less patience, a decrease in our ability to empathize with others, an inability to be fully present where we are. How many of you know what FOMO is? Most of you know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. FOMO. FOMO, fear of missing out. And that's what drives some people to be constantly connected to their devices. They don't want to miss out. They don't want to miss out. I need to, whether I don't want to miss out what's happening politically, I don't want to miss out on what's happening in the entertainment world, I don't want to miss out what's happening in the athletic world, I don't want to miss out what my kids are doing, I don't want to miss out on the latest sale, I don't want to, whatever your interest is, we have this fear of missing out. And some of us don't even want a reputation for missing out. Some of us like to be the people with the news. We don't like people telling us. Have you heard? I know, I know, I know. Do you have any friends like that? I already know, I've heard. Did you hear about the draft? I already know about the draft pick. I know, I know. Because some people's identity is wrapped up and they always have the information. And so they want to constantly be connected because they don't want to miss out. We enjoy being in the know. Here's what's so ironic. It's actually fear of missing out that actually in the end puts you on a pace to miss out on peace, on rest, on empathy, on the people you're in the same room with. Isn't it interesting that FOMO is one of the primary ways the enemy worked in the garden? <laughs> right? It's FOMO because he tells Eve, if you continue to do things the way God said it, mm, you're going to miss out. 
God knows if you eat of that tree, you'll be just like him. The enemy's working through FOMO. If you do it God's way, you're going to miss out. Is that not the story behind why we compromise the way we do? Fear of missing out. And yet, if you're enslaved to FOMO, you wind up, you wind up missing out on flourishing. Andy Crouch wrote a great little book called The Tech Wise Family. I would strongly encourage anyone to get it. The Tech Wise Family, Andy Crouch. He writes this, so good. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us bond with real people we've been given to love. It's out of its proper place when we end up bonding with people at a distance, like celebrities who we'll never meet. Technology is in its proper place when it starts great conversations. It's out of its proper place when it prevents us from talking and listening to one another. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us care for the fragile bodies we inhabit. It's not when our fascination with it leads us to ignore our vulnerabilities and needs. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us acquire skill and mastery of domains that are the glory of human culture, sports, music, arts, writing, cooking. But when we let technology replace the development of skill with passive consumption, something has gone wrong. It's about recognizing the place that technology has in our lives, but in such a way that it leads you to flourish and not to flounder. That's why I began with you in Genesis 1. The human beings have the authority to reorder materials for human purposes on the earth. And in some ways, life on earth won't be what it can be without human beings using their authority to do it. Because there wouldn't have been shrubs and plants, the Genesis writer says, if there was no one to work the ground. So technology has a place in life on earth flourishing. But when it's out of place, we flounder. So what do we do? Let me close by giving you some thoughts. Keeping technology in its proper place, first of all, requires us wising up. Wising up. There's a powerful passage, and I can send you the notes later. If you want to email me, I'll send you all these notes later. But there's a powerful passage in Job 28 where Job is reflecting on the wonders of mining. He's talking about all that humans can do, the places that human beings can go underneath the earth. They're mining in Job's day, the ancient day, and he's marveling. Human beings are going places where not even animals can go, and human beings are bringing light to places where there's never been light. He's marveling at all of this, but then he says this toward the end of Job 28. He says, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. He says, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And then he says, God understands the way to it, for he alone knows where it dwells. What's he saying? Job was saying, we can be amazed at all the technology we want to about mining. We can do a lot of things on this planet. But we can only do so much without wisdom. And in the midst of marveling at all you can do, don't forget to search for wisdom. Because you can be smart and not be wise. You can ha have a smartphone and still be a very foolish person. And this is what I'm talking about when we talk about and marvel at all the rights we have with our technology. But if you have rights without wisdom, you'll have flourish, floundering instead of flourishing. Life is not just about access and tools. Life is not just about freedom and opportunities. It's about knowing what the right thing to do is with the access, the tool, the freedom, and the opportunity. And to wise up involves looking at what God has to say, really through Jesus most clearly, for Jesus is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, right? You might be thinking, come on, Chris, how is anything Jesus taught going to help me be wise with my device? 
Well, he identified the two greatest commands. He, he actually thought that the commands of God were instructions for how to put a life together and how to put a community together. That's what Torah means. Torah means instruction. There were, and so the Torah, the, the law, what Jesus believed, these were instructions for how to help life flourish on the planet. So when it comes to my relationship with my device and my screens, here's some questions you can ask. Are my tech habits helping me to flourish in love for God and for others? Are my tech habits helping me to flourish spiritually into greater Christ-likeness? Or even intellectually, or even physically, or relationally? How are my tech habits helping others to flourish in this way? Because more and more, I'm inclined to trade reality with the person in front of me for virtual reality with six billion other people on the planet that I'm not with at that moment. And so I'm connected to everyone else I'm not with except the person that I am with. And I'm out of touch with God's time because he's made everything beautiful in its time. And wisdom is knowing what time it is. And I don't know what time it is unless I can live fully in the moment in tune with him, his spirit, and where I am. Second thing, if you want to keep it in its place, it's wising up, which is why we've done the theology of technology during this time. It's shaping space. Here's what I mean. Think about the space you have in your life, your office, your home, your gathering places. My sister and her husband, they live in Colorado. They have one television they've chosen to have in their home. It's in the basement of their home. So that if you want to watch television, you have to make a conscious decision to go down to the basement. Why? Because on the top floor, that's the floor where you enter in to the home, the top floor, the living room, the, the kitchen table, the dining room table, the kitchen, all of that strategically has no screens in it to foster a conversation between one another. Remember what I told you earlier, it takes seven minutes to develop a conversation? And the reason it's so hard to have conversations today is we're less and less equipped to wade through the first seven minutes. We're more insecure than we've ever been before. We get border quicker than ever before, and we bail before the conversation really develops. So they made the decision that in our home, you come into our home, and they've got children. I mean, true confession, I had a great babysitter for my boys, the screens. I'm indicted by this, you know. But they've just made the decision that we're going to be in a home that's going to try and foster conversation and, and interaction. And yeah, if you want to watch TV, you can watch TV. But we've shaped our space so that you're consciously making the decision to go watch it. And it's not just on. And hey, if you get tired of talking to each other, then you can read. You can chill. They've made some decisions to shape space. I know a family, they're required to leave their cell phones in the kitchen before bedtime. Mom or dad has one cell phone in their room in the case of emergency because they got boys that drive, you know. Boys are out late at night. But, the, but everyone else got to have the cell phones in the kitchen. And you know what? Not only is it obviously it's protecting the others in the room from what can happen with a cell phone late at night in the privacy of your own bedroom, but not only that, everybody's getting more rest because there's all kinds of work being done on how the blue lights from your phone actually interrupts your sleep patterns so that you're not sleeping as deeply and that's really important for your intellectual and emotional development as a young person and by the way it's really important for you as an adult when it comes to dealing with stress that you move into deeper arenas of sleep and so they've made the decision hey there's one phone in a bedroom it's by dad or mom's head and everybody else's devices it's in the kitchen well you're supposed to sleep you're supposed to sleep because there's a time to rest. That's where you need to be where you are. Structuring time. There's wising up, there's shaping space, there's structuring time. What if you shut off your smart device one hour a day in your waking hours? You don't get any credit when you sleep. In your waking hours. What if you shut off your device one day a week? What if you shut off your device one week a year? One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. Or, I'm just giving you suggestions. 
What if you wake up before your device does? My problem is my device stays awake and wakes me up before I do. What if you wake up before your device does? And what if you put your device to bed before you go to bed? What happens is our devices stay on and if they're near us, they're waking us up sometimes. And if we're trying to go to sleep, they're keeping us up. What if you woke up before your device woke up and you put your device to bed before you went to bed? What if it became an excellent servant and less of a terrible master? What if car time is conversation time and no device time? This is what we've done with our boys. My wife is a genius at this. We have saved the most sensitive conversations a lot of times for the car. Because she grants them the grace of they don't have to look at her when we're talking about very real stuff involving sexuality and morality or pain or disappointment with God. And sometimes our rule has been no devices in the car and we're driving and we're having these milestone conversations with our kids who still have the grace of they don't have to look at us in the eye, but they're engaging in conversation, but we can still keep up with them in the rearview mirror. <laughs> what if conversation time in the car was just no device time? What if we replace some device times and screen times with reading or conversation or exercise or board games? I know these are tall orders for some of us, but just think about structuring time because here's the deal. Again, if you're enslaved to FOMO, if you're enslaved to fear of missing out, and that's what keeps you online, the irony is it puts you in a position to miss out with what's happening with you, where you are, to miss out on peace, rest, presence with loved ones, and even ministering to a loved one, structuring time. I'll go on with another suggestion. I, don't be afraid of using the nudge. Here's what I mean by the nudge. There's an author by the name of Richard Thaler who wrote about the power of the nudge in some of his work. And he, uh, he talked about the importance of understanding a nudge. A nudge is making a change in your space or your way of operating that's going to help you make a better choice. Now, grocery stores understand the nudge. There's a reason they put chips and sodas at the end of the aisles because you have a better chance of seeing their chips and sodas. That's where their higher profit margin is. It costs them very little for chips and soda, but they can sell at a premium because there's such demand. And they're nudging you by having it at the end of the aisle. You no longer have to go down a particular aisle. You're liable to see it while you walk by it. The power of the nudge. There's all kinds of things that app, app designers are geniuses at the nudges. If you have automatic notifications on your phone, ring ESPN, you know, or eBay or here's what's happening with that item that you've been monitoring on eBay ring you know like that all of a sudden you get the dopamine rush that I was talking about earlier you know and you're like it's all the nudge and so when you understand the power of the nudge you, you learn how to work with it so an example of a nudge would be to turn off the automatic notifications on your phone an example of a nudge for me is when I go into a restaurant and there are flat screen TVs I try to purposely sit myself to, with my back to the television because if I can see a screen, I will be more prone to look at the screen than into the person's eyes. We're talking about learning the power of a nudge. You know, learning the power of a nudge. Power of a nudge would be if you struggle with using it while you're driving, and you know you shouldn't be driving and using it, you put the sucker in your glove compartment and you turn off the notifications. Learn the power of a nudge. <laughs> I, I could think of so many disasters I've been involved in in my life with technology. It's time for me to wrap up, but I'll tell you a story. I'll try and clean it up for you a little bit. I remarried a couple here recently. Um, I met this guy at the gym five years ago in his mid-50s. He's awakened to the Lord. He's wound up bringing seven other men 
with the gym, from the gym with them into the life of our church. We've seen a few of them baptized. It's been some of the most exciting work I've been a part of, all in my neighborhood. And uh, he was divorced. He met a woman. She recommitted her life to the Lord. Long story short, they said, will you marry us? I said, yeah, they're in the mid-50s. So I married them in a park. The day I married them in a park, my wife was out of town in another state. And we got, I got done marrying them, and they handed me a card. I said, well, thank you so much. And so I've, I've got the card, and about an hour later, I'm looking at the card. They've left to drive to their honeymoon spot in East Texas. About an hour later, I got the card. Open up the card. It's a nice note from the couple I just married and a gift card to take my wife to a steakhouse. I'm, oh, that's so sweet. So I text that man and his new wife. And I'm composing a text thanking them for the card, you know. And at the same time, another text pops up from my wife. My wife has an old watch she's inherited from my father, beautiful watch. She had taken it with her on this trip because she wanted to wear it with some outfits. It, it needed to be set, the hands so she says, can you talk to me about how to set the first hand and the second hand? I said, okay. So I start writing instructions out to her while also managing a conversation with this other couple that is on their way to their honeymoon. And somehow I got mixed up, if you've ever done this in the texts, and I sent the text about what to do with the first hand and the second hands <laughs> to this couple in their mid-50s that have just gotten married. And I had no idea I did it until three minutes later my phone dings and it's the guy that's saying, well, thanks for your instructions, but we're in our mid-50s. We didn't think we needed any help. And I can hardly look at them to this day when I'm preaching. <laughs> we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble, don't we, with technology. From the ATM guy that I told you about at the very beginning who somehow gets himself locked in the ATM machine while trying to fix it and he can't get out, trapped by technology, to sometimes sending the wrong messages to the wrong people. It's an excellent servant. It's just a lousy master. And I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that maybe the greatest example of God redeeming a piece of technology is the cross. The cross was a piece of technology for death. And of all things, it's been redeemed for life. And that's my hope for our relationship with technology. I've talked to you a lot to your brain about a theology of technology. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk about our heart. But in the meantime, I'll leave you with this from the psalmist. May the Lord cause you and your children to flourish. Go in peace. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.